Well, let's go ahead and stand this morning. Let's say our prayer on the top of your handout. Almighty God, the fount of all wisdom, enlightened by thy Holy Spirit, those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the same spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And amen. Thank you so much this morning. You may be seated. Again, we have a little class, uh, we have a little schedule change. It's not a class if there's not at least one schedule change. It's always obligated to at least have one of those. And of course, this morning we're not dealing with the sacraments. We're going to be dealing with the history of the church. So we move that one up, the history of the church, two parts, this Sunday, next Sunday. And then we'll deal with the sacraments, I believe, on March the 27th. And two Sundays from today. But just as a way to review a little bit this morning, so we've been asking the question, what is the church? Our class has three big questions. The first one is, what is the church? And we've given a definition of the church, and that is that the church is a community of Christians who were created to worship. Well, that got us thinking about worship a little bit. And so the last two Sundays, we've been talking about worship. And uh, we talked about how worship is liturgical. And that word liturgical means that it's the work of the people or the work on behalf of the people. We also said that worship is a little bit like theater. We've been using that analogy, that metaphor, if you will, of, of a theater, that it has props and players, it has a script, it has costumes or vestments, it also has a stage. We talked about the stage last time, a three-part stage, the nave, the largest part of the stage of worship, the chancel, and then, of course, the sanctuary being the smallest, most intimate part of our worship, uh, of the stage of worship, nave, chancel, and also sanctuary. We also said that it's like a two-act play. If you look at all of our bulletins, you're always seeing the bulletin, the Word of God and that Holy Communion. It's the liturgy of the Word and it's the liturgy of the table. And we said that it's also progressive. That's one of the arguments of the class, that it's progressive, that it goes from the Word being presented up into then Holy Communion. And to run through a little bit of that, you get, of course, have the procession, the ushering in the Word of God. Act 1, scene 1, affirming the Word. We do all those lovely things, the opening acclamation, all the way to the collect of the day. Then, of course, we hear the word in, in, uh, in scene number two. We hear the word of God being read to us, lessons, the gospel being read. We pray the word of God in scene three, which is the prayers of the people, the confession, absolution, the peace. That's all part of praying the word. And then, of course, act two, the second part of the service, scene one, is the offertory. The offertory not just being about money, but it's, uh, that's part of it, but it's a bigger part of that. It's uh, just a piece of a bigger part of the pie, which is offering ourselves. And in some ways, seeing that offering plate as a symbol of putting ourselves in that offering plate, putting ourselves up on the altar, as you can see there in that depiction, that artistic depiction there, of the lamb being on top of the altar. As Christ was offered on the altar, so are we spiritually offered on the altar. And that's the offertory. And then, of course, scene two is Holy Communion, communion with Christ and others. And we said that we would talk about that more at the retreat, which again is going to be Saturday, May the 7th. Saturday, May the 7th. So we'll do an instructed Eucharist on that day. So more on that, Holy Communion, later on. And then, of course, we can't forget about the recession, though I think I did forget about it last week. That is, of course, when we take the beauty of church, the beauty of God, out into the world 
to let it impact the world. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And all the people say, Oh, you guys are just well-trained. Look at that, well-trained Episcopalians. Look at that. Of course, the two P's of our worship, participation and prayer, everything done is everything prayed. Even reading the lessons is an act of prayer. The entire service is one big act of prayer. So today we move on. We're going to talk about history. We're going to talk about history. We have a little, a little lighter this morning, I noticed. Uh, maybe that's because folks have heard that we're going to talk about history. So if you're a history fan, thanks for being here this morning. Maybe not. That, that could be part of it too. Changing the clock is a very important part of the second Sunday in March. Our class this morning will have two different parts, part one, part two. Actually, I'm going to confuse things. Let me, let me back up for one, just one second. This whole class today is part one. Next Sunday will be part two. <laughs> so in part one, there's two different halves, right? There's the first half and the second half. It's like a basketball game, at least college basketball game. The first half will talk about the ancient English church, and the second half will talk about the Church of England. As you notice here, it's a Reformed Catholic Church. So this is all about history this morning. If you like history, this is your class right here. I want to start with a theme this morning, or I'm sorry, a claim this morning, not a theme, a claim this morning, and this is the claim on the top of your handout, that all Episcopalians are Anglicans. All Episcopalians are Anglicans. Okay? The word Anglican just means the word, it just really is a word that means English. So it begs the question, how deep are our roots? We have to go whole way back to this land that we call England. We call England today. And that's exactly right. In many ways, being an Episcopalian means that we have to be interested in England. <laughs> okay? Here, of course, is England today. We all notice England today. It's that uh, almost an island. Well, it actually is an island because, again, you have Scotland and uh, at least Northern Ireland as part of England. And also, uh, what's the third one? That's Scotland. Wales. Always feel about Wales. Yeah. Scotland, Wales, and also Northern Ireland, of course, provinces of Greater England. So there's England today. And then, of course, around 660, you can see how. England looked at that point in time. You can see these three folks down here, how it's basically is a one big landmass, but you have different kinds of people. You have the Britons, the Saxons, and also the Angles, and we'll talk more about that, and that sort of development. So very, very divided back there in, in, six, uh, in 660. So let's talk a little bit about our, about our roots here in this first part, first half of the class, the ancient English church. So basically the church in England, and we'll say it that way, not the church of England, that comes later, church in England, get the preposition right, church in England, really begins in the 300s. That's when we actually have documented proof. We have our first martyr that happens in the 300s. We don't know exactly when he was martyred, but that was St. Alban. The reason why St. Alban is very important to, uh, what's that? Oh, we're going we're gonna to get to that one. Yeah, we'll go through the whole history, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and then the second thing, you have a martyr, of course. And the second thing you need, if you will, 
You also need bishops. You need bishops as well to really have a church. And we actually have documented proof of this. There is a council called the Council of Arles in 314. So very, very early, 314, very beginning of the 4th century. And what, basically what happens is you have this meeting that comes, that happens in Arles, and, and they have a sign-in sheet, right? As all meetings have to have sign-in sheets. All sign-in classes have their sign-in sheets. And so the sign-in sheet, and in that sign-up sheet, the ancient proof there is you have three bishops that sign in from what we now call England today, in the British Isles. Yes? Not yet. We'll get... Yes. I w- because my argument is always going to be the Roman Catholic Church is part of what evolves in the 500s and the 600s. Right? It is not... This is the... Yeah. Yeah, this, this is the... Yeah. Yeah. And I, would, and I would basically drop at this point all the descriptions, and I would just say the church, right? The Christian church, right? It's one universal Christian church at this point in time. You have an east side, and you also have a west side. And the west side, of course, is becoming more and more developed. Uh, and we'll look at that here in just a second. So you have your first martyr. You also have your first bishops in what we now know as England, your first English bishops, and so, again, that in many ways substantiates that now we have a thriving church. Well, I don't know about thriving. We have a church in this part of the world, okay? We, all, we all, always know we have a church, obviously, in continental Europe. But what about over here in this part of the, the land that we call England? The English church. We, we know that as that now with these three bishops that, that get signed in. So let's uh, digress for just a moment. Let's go back to that same thing we've already had questions on and we've had some discussion on. What is the first 300 years of the Christian church? Here is the first 300 years of the Christian church. Here are some of the qualities that you have. The reason why a bishop is so important, and what we say, you've got to have a bishop to actually have a church. It's because the church, for the first 300 years, and even on from that, believed in what we call apostolic secession. So what you had, you had Jesus Christ on, on earth, Jesus Christ. But even Jesus himself says that I'm not coming to invent anything. I've come to fulfill the law. So I take what's been handed to me, and I am coming and I am going to fulfill it. So Jesus, in many ways, takes what's been handed to him, and he perfects it. He fulfills it. But what does he do? He calls out these these disciples that then become apostles, these apostles, and he pours his life into them, his three years of earthly ministry. And then when Jesus, of course, dies and is raised on the third day, comes back again for those 40 days, and what is he doing? He is pouring his life once again, because he has 40 days left, into these apostles. But all the, the apostles, Jesus also appeared, as the Bible says, over 500 people. These are the broader disciples that are following him, right? His mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, oh, very important. All these women, all of these uh, apostles, and so... And, of course, Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father. So what do these disciples do? What do these apostles do? Well, they keep preaching and teaching the good news. As Jesus says, first start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, 
and spread the good news of the gospel. So then you have these apostles, and they go to work. They, sp- they start to spread out, spread out in the entire world. The Apostle Paul, for example, says, I've got to get to Rome. Rome is where it's at. It is the power player of the world. The gospel's got to get to Rome. And he is obsessed that he will get to Rome before he dies. And he does, right? And so the church starts to spread out. So let's take one of the, the apostles. Let's take our beloved, our beloved Saint John, our patron saint. What does John do? John pours his life into many people, but one of those folks is named Polycarp. He pours his life into Polycarp because John knows that one day he's going to die. He won't be around all the time. And Polycarp is going to carry on the tradition. And Polycarp is, uh, is consecrated a bishop. He's one of those, that first generation of bishops. You have the apostles. The next generation you have bishops. So he's in the first generation of a bishop. Polycarp. And Polycarp does his ministry. What does Polycarp do in his ministry? He pours his life into a lot of people. One of those folks that he pours his life into is a person by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus becomes, after a a great martyrdom, in what we call modern-day France, in Lyon, France. Uh, After this martyrdom, Irenaeus becomes a bishop. He's consecrated as a bishop. So what is Irenaeus doing? Irenaeus is carrying on what Jesus, what John, what Polycarp has given to him. That is apostolic secession. That is the apostles, then that next generation's bishop, the next generation bishop, next generation bishop, next generation bishop, and it goes on from there. That's how, that's how the truth, the gospel, carries on. What about the first 300 years? What are, what are some of the characteristics of this church, as you can see there? First is the one characteristic is the faith handed down, as we just described. Even the book of Jude talks about that. The faith that was handed down to me, I carry on. That is the job of a Christian, of a Christian steward. It's also the first 300 years of the church, heavy persecutions, heavy, heavy persecutions. Okay? There is a lot of local persecution. There are two emperors that, ca- that has it as their goal, it's empire-wide persecution to wipe out the Christian church, wipe out this cancer, this, this horrible effect upon the world of Christianity. So they live in a very persecuted world. Also, there are very, very sacramental people. The Holy Eucharist is very, very important to them. Baptism is the way you get into the church, but Holy Eucharist is the thing that will sustain you, feeding upon the Lord Jesus Christ, His body and His blood. So, when we look at this, what we see here is a church in its first 300 years is very, very persecuted. Then it becomes a more dominated church, a, a dominant church, excuse me, a dominant church in 313, as the Emperor Constantine comes and unites the Roman Empire, unites it back together again, at least for the most part, unites it back together again, but one of the reasons he does that, one of the things he uses to do that, is of course Christianity. He is different than all the other emperors, all the other emperors rejected Christianity, Constantine is going to embrace it and use it for political means. We don't have time to dissect Constantine and his motivations. We can do that at a later time, but that's at least what happens, right, in history. That begins again very uh, much more of a dominant church, a church that can actually meet together and be together. This is when you start having ecumenical councils and whatnot. And, and then to the, the point, the qu- question, I would say right here in 313, we still don't have 
what we call a Roman Catholic church. We get that Roman Catholic church in the 400s and the 500s and the 600s, and we'll talk more about that here in just a second. So let's go back. Well, let's first of all talk about that 400s. What's happening in the world in the 400s? Well, um, one word that can describe it is, is that there's a lot of instability in the world. A lot of instability. In fact, you have these, these invasions that are taking place constantly, constantly that are breaking down the Roman Empire. And eventually it's going to fall. Internal moral, immorality and corruption, outer invasions, breaks down the Roman Empire. There's little concept of nation. In fact, there's hardly any concept of nation in the 400s, in this point in time, in the beginning of the Middle Ages. Eventually, though, what happens is the Roman Catholic Church fills that power vacuum. There's a power vacuum in the world. Something's got to fill it, at least in the Western world. The Roman Empire, or the, the Roman Catholic Church, is the thing that fills it. And it fills it in about the 400s, 500s time period. We start to see this church now start to evolve, as now the whole Christian church Instead of having lots and lots of different bishops throughout the world, now they start looking to Rome, and that bishop in Rome becomes much, much more important, right? And there's all sorts of reasons for that. But that bishop of Rome is going to start filling in that power vacuum as the Roman Catholic Church starts building itself. Well, now let's go back to England. Let's go back to what we call Britain. What, what is happening there? Well, not good. A lot of... And before this, this part of the world was becoming Christianized. It was becoming Christianized. But now you have invasions that start taking place. You have these folks, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, and they start coming over from continental Europe across the pond, and they start coming over into England, and they start to take over. And these invasions had the same effect as a part of the Roman Empire. It starts breaking down Christianity in England. It destroys the church, that church, that, uh, that old ancient English church. So Christianity is now pushed back. Where does it go? It, it's pushed back to the western edges of, the, of, of Britain. But it still survives, though. It survives, though, in monasteries. It survives in the monasteries of Scotland and of Ireland in a very western tip of, of England. On islands like Iona and Linden's Farm, very, very important monasteries that play a very important role in the church. So the very important thing is to realize that you have this ancient Christianity in England, and then with all these invasions of these barbarians, barbarians, right? What happens is, pagan people, what happens is, is it pushes Christianity to the very edges. But what happens... Uh, Oftentimes in, in church history, when Christianity gets pushed to the edges, it starts to make a comeback in various ways. And by the way, before I move on, uh, one of the reasons that you have these monasteries in Ireland and in Scotland is because of folks like that guy. We know who that guy is, right? There you go. This Thursday, St. Patrick's Day, it is a wonderful, wonderful history. It's a beautiful history of St. Patrick and all that he was able to do. But the reason why, again, we owe a debt of gratitude to people like St. Patrick is because Christianity survived in those monasteries 
And they were developed and they were there because of people like St. Patrick and the work that they did. But then they start, it starts to make a comeback. And so in these monasteries, they start sending out missionaries to go back into the middle of England or southern England or northern England and start to evangelize. There's also another move that happens, and that happens primarily in the south. It's in the year 597. So now we've gone from the 400s, the early 500s, but now in the latter 500s in 597, there's a person that is the Bishop of Rome. And by the way, at this point, uh, this Bishop of Rome's name, of course, is Gregory the Great. If we really want a date for when the Roman Catholic Church becomes the Roman Catholic Church, you are really well served if you look at this Pope right here. Gregory the Great is one of the most important popes uh, that's ever existed. He really did form the Roman Catholic Church. Gregory the Great. And one of the reasons that they were able to do this is because they, Gregory the Great had a great vision. And he starts that vision of saying, we're going to go into pagan lands and we're going to start spreading the gospel. We're not just going to stay here in Rome or in continental Europe. We're going to reach and expand our reach in the world. And obviously, one of the places they go is, of course, England. He sends one of his uh, priests, a man by the name of Augustine. Not that Augustine, not the great church father that used to exist, the great church father or the bishop of, uh, of Hippo. Another Augustine, of course, is named for that great bishop of Hippo. This Augustine is different. This Augustine is a priest that's trying to serve his, his, uh, his pope, and he is sent to the British Isles to evangelize. He sent off with a number of small acolytes. And where do they go? Well, they go to southern England. They go to a place called Canterbury. Canterbury is the capital of Kent. And the king of Kent is actually a good friend because the wife of the king is a Christian. The wife of a king looks to the pope. And so what does the wife do? She influences her husband, give this person, give these acolytes, give this whole delegation uh, safe, uh, uh, host them, host them. And so that's what they do. So Augustine and his small uh, band of acolytes have a lot of success. And they win the backing of the political elite. Very important. Win the political elite. Um, and that's what they do. And so they're able to establish Canterbury as the sea. S-E-E. S-E-E is the seat of authority. So Canterbury becomes the seat of authority because of Augustine. And Augustine, of course, becomes, as he's consecrated then a bishop, he becomes the first archbishop of Canterbury. Augustine establishes it. So what you have, as we have this now uh, evangel, uh, the whole country now becoming more island, becoming more evangelized, what you have now is basically two different, oh yeah, I'm always behind on my slides, by the way. So here comes the comeback. There's the comeback. There's the Celtic missionaries that are coming from the monasteries in the west and also in the north, and then also Augustine, who comes from the south. And there's Augustine. So again, the ancient English church, your first bishop, martyr, your first bishops, you have invasions, and then, of course, you have two streams that gets developed. Two different streams. The one in the west and also in the north is a Celtic stream. These are the missionaries that come from the monasteries. 
And then down south, you have a Roman stream. So a few more things about this. In the north, again, monasteries, Celtic. In the north, there's not a lot of cities. And so those who are in charge are, of course, not bishops, but they're monks. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, they're, they're abbots. An abbot is the leader of the monks. So it's the abbots that are in charge. Down south, it's a lot more metropolitan. A lot of very important cities have the power elite there in their cities. And, of course, it's bishop-led. It's under, again, these bishops, of course, are under the Pope's authority. Because this is the, now the Roman church time period. So one author has said that the English church was a bit eclectic. And that is an understatement. It really was. It was very, very eclectic, made up of these two different streams. And they had, of course, get to, they had to, of course, be together. And how do we work together in this rather small landmass? We're not talking about a huge uh, piece of land, right? We know what England looks like. So you have to work together. And one of the ways the way they work together is, of course, through these meetings. They call, this, they call them synods. And then when you get together, and they would have these synods, and they have these meetings. One of the more important synods that takes place is the Synod of Whitby in 664. So now you can see where we're at in history, 664. They get together, and they have to decide what is going to be the date of Easter. Very, very important sort of decision. This is when our Lord, of course, was raised from the dead. So you kind of, you know, biggest celebration of the year. You kind of need to know when we're going to celebrate it, right? And the Celtic practice was one thing, and the Roman practice was another thing. So they had to get together to agree how, what is the date of Easter going to be. And it's the, uh, the king of Northumbria, up north, very, very important king. He was the one that actually hosts this and gets this meeting together. This is a Celtic king. Again, up north, Celtic king. But one of the really interesting developments of the Synod, and the re reason why it's so important, because this is really the first time in which you had the Celtic folks, the king of Northumbria, saying that we're going to go with the Roman practice. The Roman practice is the correct one. And also confessing that, Saint, that uh, the bishop of Rome, what we call the pope, is the bishop of Rome, the bishop of Rome is in fact the successor to St. Peter. So basically what you have is you have in the sin of, of Whitby, we don't want to overstate it, but also in the development as well, around this time period, you have the Roman Catholic Church taking supremacy over this church in England. Pope Gregory writes to Augustine in one of the most more famous um, excerpts. And what Pope Gregory advises his young acolyte, his, this now bishop, his Archbishop of Canterbury, Augustine, he says this, that things are not to be loved for the sake of places, but places for the sake of good things. So choose, therefore, from every church those things that are pious, religious, and upright. And when you have made them into one body, let the minds of the English be made accustomed thereunto. In other words, what Pope Gregory the Great is saying to Augustine is, be discerning. Take from a lot of different Christian traditions, the things that are pious and upright, and meld them into this English church. So the first, for the very get-go, what we're trying to establish here is that we were a bit eclectic. We also are, always had this mindset of taking the good things 
and bringing them together into this new church, into this church that's developing over the course of time. So we'll talk more about that as we, as we go along. And then, of course, we have the Synod of, of, of Whitby in 664. We really do see the Roman Catholic Church gaining supremacy. As one author has put it, the English church becomes more fully Roman Catholic after this synod. Because much more Catholic, fully Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic, excuse me. At this point now, we're going to skip over 900 years of history. Skipping over 900 years of history. And um, in this 900 years of history, about the 600s to the uh, late 1400s, there's a couple of things we want to talk about or, or t- uh, t- uh, let you know about. Uh, first of all, the church in England evolves into becoming more and more organized. Again, the, the Middle Ages here, which is basically what these years are, has, again, been really uh, criticized, I think, popularly. We like to call them the Dark Ages. Well, that's grossly, grossly overstated, first of all. It is not the Dark Ages. The 400s and the 500s, yeah, okay, I'm with you. Definitely the Dark Ages. But what happens in the High Middle Ages, for example, is some, some of the most uh, developments in, in terms of arts, in terms of politics, in terms of governance. And we start to see this evolution take place. Even in the Church of England, because much more organized. You basically have two different areas that are controlled by two different bishops. You have York in the north and also Canterbury in the south. Now, we talked about here just a few months ago how that in the north, they didn't have bishops. They had abbots. They didn't have bishops. But now look what's happened. Because of that Roman Catholic influence, you now have a very important bishop, the Bishop of York, that controls the north. Bishop of uh, York in the north, Bishop of Canterbury in the south. Again, the church was the province of the Roman Catholic Church. Meaning, of course, that bishop in Rome... That Pope in Rome is the supreme authority. All these other bishops are saying, are bowing down to that Pope, if you will. The Church in England also grows and matures theologically. So St. Anselm of Canterbury is his greatest theologian this time period. And Anselm is just great. Wonderful. Also, mystical theology grows. Juliana Norwich, who's a wonderful, wonderful mystic, wonderful theologian. Uh, and I highly recommend her, her writings to you. Uh, she also is in this time period as well. Also, the cultural notes. As we talked about, the concept of nation starts to evolve. Laws, the rule of law, what leaders owe the people starts to develop. And that's actually an overstatement. I, I probably shouldn't have said it that way. Because the idea of what a leader owes to the people is really more about democracy. This is a step uh, kind of behind that, and that is, what, does, what do these political leaders owe the nation? What do they owe the collective? Not necessarily the individual people, but to the collective. And starts, that, that starts to grow and develop. As we have more and more political theory that starts growing and developing, that really begins in the high Middle Ages. The idea of the monarch, and again, it's monarchs, the idea that the monarch is given by God, established by God, by divine right. So he has been placed, and more often than not, it's going to be he, he is placed as a king. God did that. And so what does that king now owe the nation? Also, I should also say this as well. Um, what else do I want to say this as well? Um, I just forgot it. 
I might come back to it if I remember it. But that idea of uh, given by God about divine right is that very, very important. It's very, very important when we talk about the next part, the second half of our class today, which, of course, is that Reformed Catholic English Church. All right, in the last 10 minutes that we're together. It's already 10 minutes to go. This has gone fast. But I digress one final time. To, to finish out the history of the whole Christian church, let's add on another piece. So you have the persecuted church, the dominant church for those Middle Ages, and then what happens is, starting in the 16th century, you have a reforming church. It starts over there in Continental Europe with that old guy named Martin Luther, right? In, in Germany. But it'll start coming in effectively the entire Western world, including Old England. The Reformation gets to Old England in the 1530s. And that, of course, means that we have to talk about the very intimate story of King Henry. So here we go. Second half right here is the Church of England, a Reformed Catholic Church. How does it start? Well, there is a man that is on the throne. He is a king. He is a king of England. And his name is Henry VII. We're going to start there. Henry VII. Henry VII, if you actually know the history of the War of Roses and things of this nature, you will know that King Henry VII uh, should be a little bit paranoid. Okay? His hold of the throne isn't exactly, his family's throne on the, home, on the throne, is not, next, not exactly the most stable of things. But he's okay. He's got an older son. And that old son, that older, this oldest son is married to a woman named Catherine. So everything's fine. Got the secession plan down pat. That is, of course, until that older son dies. Then he becomes a lot more paranoid. So what does he do? Because he's got the widow, Catherine, out there, and she, she can cause a whole lot of issues and problems. That, that looks like instability. What does he do? He gets his next oldest son, and he, him, he forces that next oldest son, who's 17 years of age. He's 17. He's going to marry Catherine. Put it together. Now Catherine is obligated in this marriage. She's not a free agent over here. It can cause problems. And now you have another secession plan put in place. My 17-year-old son will be the king one day. He's married, got Catherine. They're having, they have a son, and everything will be fine. That is, of course, until he dies, Henry VII, and that, that son does become the next king, who, of course, is Henry VIII. Henry VIII becomes the next king. Of course, he already has Catherine as his wife. But as we all know the story, he's waiting and waiting and waiting. Doing some work, too, I'm sure. But waiting and waiting and waiting, and there's no son. Catherine is not producing for him an heir. He has daughters. But by the way, there's only been one queen at this point, one queen in England, and that was a disaster. So you can't go back to that again. Women are not the solution. At least in Henry VIII's mind. There's irony here. There's lots of irony. I love this story. So anyhow, he then uh, proceeds. He needs a son, needs a son, needs a son. But again, if you look at this a negative part, and there's a lot of negativity to look at this, and uh, he's not a great guy, for sure. But you can, you can say, well, he's just power-obsessed. That is one interpretation. I like the more positive interpretation. Probably the truth's more in the middle. But the more positive interpretation is this idea of divine right of kings. Henry is a paperless. He looks at the pope in Rome as being his guide. And he, he understands the divine right of kings. 
He understands that he owes his nation, he owes his country stability. And this is not stability. He needs a son to get that stability. And that really is his motivation, is that that idea of stability. So again, when Catherine doesn't produce a a male heir, he then uh, files for an annulment. And what does he do? He goes to the Pope, writes a letter, his lawyers write a letter, uh, and asking for an annulment on two different grounds. The one ground is, is you can't force marriage. And he was forced into this marriage when he was 17 years of age. The second ground is Leviticus. Leviticus commands that you can't marry your brother's widow. And so on those two grounds, his lawyer, Thomas Cramwell, writes up the papers and appeals to the, to the Pope. And the Pope, for his own political reasons, comes back and says, Henry, so sorry, I'm not granting the annulment. So now we got a problem. Now we got a standoff. His very talented lawyer, Thomas Cramwell, looks into English law. The idea of divine right of kings has always been, the idea now, again, as we talked about, law has really developed in these last 300 years. The concept of law being very important. What has always been part of law, oh yeah, that's the thing I forgot. I'm coming back to it now. Uh, the idea of, um, uh, in, in this English law, it, it was this, always this idea that the king, the monarch, is not only the head of the state, he's also the head of the church. Because this is also the part of divine right of kings. It's Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the head of the, is head of all things. He's the head of the church. He's also the head of the state. Jesus Christ is the head of all things, right? Well, a king is an embodiment of Jesus Christ. A king, as we understand, is the head of the state. But you can't split up state and church, even though we do. We'll get to that. But you can't split up state and church. We would never do that. Church and state go together. It's one reality. And so, therefore, the monarch, the king, is the head of the church and the state, the state and the church. You can't divorce the two. But all the, all the rest of the kings of England, though, they've always just bowed down to the pope because they've all been Roman Catholic and all been papalists. It's all been well and good. This is the first time in which there's been a real dispute. So what does Henry do? Henry says... I'm breaking with Rome, and begins a new church. And this, of course, is where we have to change the preposition. And catch up on slides. Nope, I'm actually good. I'm actually good. There we go. Uh, So we have to change the preposition to the church in England, now to the church of England. But at the same time, though, we have to notice something. It didn't really change a whole lot. So this didn't really happen, but let's just say it did. Let's say that Henry broke and signed the papers on a on a Thursday, and you came into your church the previous Sunday, and you saw how church worked, and then you come in the next Sunday, in the middle of the week there is Henry's breaking with Rome, and you come to church, you're not going to see any differences. Be the same Roman, what they call Roman Missal, there on the altar, same Roman Missal, all the liturgy would be the same. There'd be absolutely no breaking whatsoever. There'd be no differences, really, whatsoever. So again, we have a very stable situation, as long as Henry's alive. Keep Henry alive, and we're all good. The Church of England is very, very Romanish. Looks very much like Rome. As long as Henry is alive. But the question becomes, what if Henry dies? And guess what? Henry dies. And that's a problem. Because the only other son that he has, so the son becomes king, is Edward VI, who is seven years of age, and is very, very feeble. 
This one's not going to last very long. He's not really made for this world. And so he reigns for six years, only six years. And during this period of time, Thomas Cramner, who is a very, very important Archbishop of Canterbury, who, by the way, when Henry was alive, served Henry very, very well, and began the prayer book. He wrote the prayer book, the very first prayer book he wrote. But when Henry dies, and now you have Edward on the throne, who again is six years of age, very, very feeble, then what happens? Well, that means that Thomas, uh, Thomas Cranmer, uh, yeah, Thomas Cranmer, excuse me, becomes very, very important. And you start to see how he, he sides much more with the Reformed folks, the folks that are more, much more in, in continental Europe, Luther and Calvin and those kinds of folks. And then after Edward dies, after six years, then who becomes the next monarch? Then we, then we actually have our daughter. We have Queen Mary comes to the throne. And of course, as we see here, I didn't, I didn't get drunk here with the PowerPoint slides. This, of course, is Bloody Mary. This is Bloody Mary. She's Bloody Mary for a reason. It's because Bloody Mary, Queen Mary, was very Roman Catholic. And she is a take-no-prisoner Roman Catholic. So what does she do? Well, when, when Edward was alive, you had a church that was very sort of veered more reformed, taking ideas from continental Europe, Luther and Calvin, taking their ideas, becoming much more reformed. And when she comes along, she's Roman Catholic, and she is going to take that whole country, become Roman Catholic. And she is going to kill lots of people. She kills over 200. And what happens? You have all these exiles running over across the pond to continental Europe. We are getting out of this country because we're on the run. Queen Mary is on the throne. But Queen Mary is not long for this world either. She has a very short reign. And so of all, of, of all, these, all this instability, what finally happens? What finally happens is this woman comes to the throne. It's the other daughter. It is, of course, Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth I. And that is really when Henry's quest is achieved. When I said there's irony to the story, is that Henry is so obsessed with a male heir. It can't, be my, it can't be a daughter. It can't be a woman. And guess what? It's a woman who provides tremendous stability to the Church of England and to the whole country of England. And it really begins, we would say, not Henry, definitely not Edward or Mary, please. She really begins what we would call his Anglicanism. Anglicanism. That word Anglican, of course, meaning English, but when we talk about uh, what is Anglicanism, it's this religious, this English religiosity, this Church of England, Anglicanism. And she has, I think, at her disposal, a very, very important concept. And that is a concept that we'll come back to and talk more about next time when we continue our history. But this is the concept right here. It's the old Latin term via media. It literally means middle road. Middle road. What is a middle road mean? Well, for some folks, a middle road means that you just compromise the heck out of everything. Whatever it takes to reach consensus. You have one side over here, one side over here. So how do we reach consensus? And you know, it doesn't really matter so much about the truth. All that matters is we reach consensus, right? Moderation is the most important thing. To, and that could be called a via media if you want to. That could be called that. But that's not at all what we're talking about here. We're not talking about some consensus building stuff. What we're talking about is really going back to what Pope Gregory 
advise Augustine that what you do is you have two different roads or two different options, a Roman Catholic option and a Reformed option. Reform being all those reformations happening in continental Europe. And what you do is you take the things that are pious, the things that are good from each of these, and what you do is you start forming your own identity and character. And what Queen Elizabeth does she has the media as sort of her philosophy. And what she does is she actually builds Anglicanism into its own identity, into its own character. And we'll talk more about what that identity, what that character looks like, and what it is next time. Looking forward to it. So thank you very much, and God bless you. Have a great week. And come to church. Come to church. If you haven't been to church already.